Does God's sovereignty prohibit man's free will and the work of salvation? Today, Jerry Johnson Live hosts a debate between two noted theologians on Calvinism and predestination, coming from the Southern Baptist Convention in San Antonio, Texas. This is Jerry Johnson Live from Criswell College. Join us as we look at today's news from the Christian worldview for Christ and culture. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. I have a dream. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. We will not tire, we will not falter, and we will not fail. Welcome to Jerry Johnson Live. For the next hour, this is your place for relevant discussion of topics in the news and in our culture from a Christian perspective. Your host is Dr. Jerry Johnson, president of Criswell College and Criswell Communications. Later in the show, we'll open the toll-free lines for your questions and comments. You may also email us at talk at jerryjohnsonlive.com. Now, here's your host, Dr. Jerry Johnson. Salvation is of the Lord. Whosoever will may come. This is Jerry Johnson Live from Criswell College. We're live at the Southern Baptist Convention with Dr. Danny Aiken and Dr. Mark Coppinger to talk about Calvinism and the Bible, Calvinism and the Southern Baptist Convention, Dr. Danny Aiken is president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and a former Criswell College professor. Welcome, Dr. Aiken. Thank you, Jerry. And Dr. Mark Coppinger, pastor of Evanston Baptist Church and former president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, we've advertised this as a debate to get this group standing around here, but we're all friends, and these folks need to know that. Uh, Just pretend we're at a Starbucks today chewing the theological fat. But we are going to get into some issues like total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. And, you know, I think one of the things that happens sometimes when we talk about the doctrines of grace or Calvinism or man's responsibility is we just start talking about one little point as if that point is in isolation. And I thought one of the best ways to begin this discussion is to give each of you an opportunity just to put the thing in context, because that's very important for people to hear your heart, to hear your mind and your soul, Uh, just your thinking in general about God's sovereignty and human responsibility in salvation. So Dr. Aiken, we'll start with you, and let's just talk about, in general, put this in context, your view on God's sovereignty and human responsibility in salvation. Okay, Jerry. Well, I've had the joy for a number of years of teaching theology, and I tell my students that the starting point for doing theology must be God. And therefore, when it comes to this doctrine, God must again be the starting point. And I would categorize myself uh, as a compatibilist. And by that, I mean this. I do believe that God is sovereign in salvation and that the Bible clearly teaches that he predestines and elects people to be saved. But he does so in such a way as to not violate our free will and moral responsibility to repent and believe the gospel. Now, is that a great mystery, and is there tension in that uh, declaration? Yes, absolutely. 
I say to the students, anything that lessens God's sovereignty, I'm going to be opposed to that. I'm going to adamantly oppose things that lead to things like open theism. On the other hand, anything that lessens our missionary evangelistic passion, I'm against that as well. And so I affirm in sort of a dual tension that God is sovereign and man is responsible to repent and exercise faith. And I operate uh, very comfortably in that uh, kind of dual track understanding of this issue. All right. Thank you very much. We'll get back to some of those statements you just made in just a minute. But uh, Dr. Coppinger, if you would just kind of, again, set the table in general, your view about God's sovereignty, human responsibility. How do you see that in total? Yeah, you know, I was raised without any notion of what Calvinism was, and I think it was when I was in a faith learning seminar at Wheaton that I first saw the term TULIP, uh, the acronym, and I became aware of it. But it wasn't until I was at Southwestern Seminary. Um, they always surprised me how much they had us read. I remember my first day in one class, the guy said, read Acts for Thursday. And I thought, well, Acts what? You know, I didn't know you were, like, read whole books at a time. <laughs> so I was reading through the Bible with more energy, and I came to Romans 9 in the student center there and was just absolutely flummoxed by the sovereignty of God pictured there, that he is absolutely in charge. I I love the word uh, compatibilism. I mean, we use it in philosophy, too, and I think that man is free in that he does what he wants to do, but he is not free in that he does not strictly want what he wants to do. He's in bondage to his nature. And so I think I think it is very finely compatible. And and when we when I affirm the abstract of principles at Southern uh, Seminary, I affirm that he has a free will, and I, I have a free will. I want to lift that Bible, but... Where does that want to come from? And that's not strictly under my control. It has to do with my nature. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. We're at the Southern Baptist Convention. We're talking about Calvinism, predestination, free will. Our guests, Dr. Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and Dr. Mark Coppinger. He teaches at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's pastor of Evanston Baptist Church. Let's talk about that for just a moment. Let's go down that, uh, that tulip. Let's go down that tulip. And we were just talking here about... Uh, depravity. I heard that word. Let's talk about total depravity. Dr. Aiken, what's your view? Well, let me first of all say what it's not. Total depravity does not mean that any one person is as bad as they can possibly be. And sometimes that is a misrepresentation of what uh, those who affirm total depravity believe. Rather, total depravity teaches that every aspect of man's being is infected with the uh, germ and the disease of sin. His mind his will, his emotions, so that of his own initiative. Man cannot, man would not, man has no desire to choose or move toward God. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God. Unless God takes the initiative in some way, and there's room for discussion on that, but unless God takes the initiative, no person will of their own volition, their own will, move toward God because they are infected fatally with the disease of sin. Let me follow up on that for just a moment, because a lot of people might be surprised to hear that, what you had to say. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church in East Texas. I didn't hear it put that way very often. And, you know, I've heard some people call us Arminian, or we've drifted Arminian. And I'm wondering if it's maybe Pelagian even. And that, um, do you think the average Southern Baptist church has heard that kind of teaching about depravity, what you just said. No, I don't, because I think we have a um, shallow, superficial view of human nature that basically says people are good. Give people the opportunity, and they will do the nice and the right thing. I believe give people the opportunity, they'll do the bad thing, because that's what the Scriptures teach. 
Uh, Dr. Coppinger, do um, you disagree with anything there? Uh, what do you think about total depravity? No, I, I absolutely agree. I, I think it's the linchpin of uh, the Calvinistic system, so to speak, that mm. your theological anthropology determines everything. If man is hopeless, if he is fouled up in each of his capacities, then he doesn't have the wherewithal to choose God. So God has to do all the work. He has to elect the person. He has to break down his uh, resistant, open Lydia, uh, resistance, open Lydia's heart, and so forth. He has to choose particular people to go for. And uh, it's, it's all of God uh, because of this. Incidentally, I, I just want to pitch one thing in. I read, when I was in grad school, I read in the New York Times Sunday Magazine that the notion of the fall of man or original sin is actually the linchpin of political conservatism, too. Um, those who think man is perfectible think that you can throw enough money in or you know education. get them out of poverty, education, whatever, and he'll come out. But if you think that he's really not curable, you basically just try to keep him from killing other people and themselves. So you tax him enough to build highways and, and so the ambulances can run, and you build an army, and it's a minimalist kind of view of government. But the, the, the notion of original sin or the fall of man or the depravity of man is hugely important. All right, Dr. Coppinger, let's go with you on that second point of the tulip now. You mentioned election. Let's talk about what that looks like in your mind. Election, is it unconditional? You believe in predestination, double predestination. Do you believe people are predestined to heaven, also to hell? Let's talk about that. How do you see it? Well, yeah, I, I do think, in fact, uh, we are chosen uh, of God. I mean, that's actually in our abstract of, of, of principles, and I think that uh, it is definitely unconditional. Some people say that God's looking down through history and, seeing, you know, who will who will kind of come through with faith. It's kind of like the Baskin-Robbins thing I saw. I think there was a quote from Ruskin that said, there's always somebody who can make it cheaper, and, uh, and the people who buy it are his rightful prey. And so they're very snooty there. So I think some people think, well, God's looking for the cream of the crop. He says, oh, I'll skim a little cream off here, a little cream there. He's not looking at who will have faith and who will be decent. He chooses. In fact, I think he brings glory to himself by choosing some of the sorriest people on earth for, I mean, look at look at us. I That's mean, right. uh, it's it's all of him. All right. Well, very interesting, Doctor Aiken. Your response. Do you think there's a note of fatalism in that? Do you? Um, what's your view on unconditional election, predest- double predestination? Okay. I don't believe in double predestination. That is that God actively saves some, and actively damns or condemns others. I do not believe that. I do believe that the scriptures teach that God does indeed predestine and elect people to be saved. But I must quickly add, as a compatibilist, I do not believe that that is incompatible or inconsistent with man's responsibility to repent and believe the gospel. I use the term compatible. My good friend Ken Keithley uses the word concurrent. There's a concurrency that exists between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Is there a mystery to it that I confess I cannot completely unravel? Yes, I, I basically joined Paul at the end of Romans 11, who has spent three and some odd chapters explaining this probably better than anyone, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, I might add, gets to the end of Romans 11 and throws up his hands and says, look, God's ways are past finding out. And I agree with that. I do think that the issues related to this particular doctrine are of such a nature that we can know some things pretty well. There are some other things that we need to acknowledge are resolved ultimately in the mind of God. And I might quickly add, in the best of the Calvinist tradition, you've had people articulate it just like that. For example, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher 
was a five-point Calvinist. At the same time, he was a passionate missionary and evangelist, and he likewise gave us a number of analogies to help us understand, in the final analysis, this is resolvable only in the mind of God. And for me, that promotes a theological humility, which again I fear is lacking too often in, in extreme positions, whether it be extreme Calvinism or an extreme Arminianism, which really, as you said earlier, it's more like semi-Pelagianism. I, I think some people don't really understand what Arminius really taught. But as a result of that, the, an arrogancy develops there that is, I think, inconsistent with what the biblical revelation provides. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. We're at the Southern Baptist Convention. We're talking about Calvinism, predestination, free will. Our guests, Dr. Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and Dr. Mark Coppinger. He teaches at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's pastor of Evanston Baptist Church. Some people have tried to uh, relieve the tension on this. I know Hobbes used to say he believed the, the church in general was elect in Christ. I know Klein has talked about a corporate view of election that uh, election is usually a, a kind of uh, a plural language. It's about the body of Christ. Dr. Carpenter, do you think that's a good assessment, or do you have problems with that? Yeah, I've got problems. I think he, from the very founding of the earth, had particular people in mind, and he did everything necessary to save them. Um, I, I do think, you know, for just our good old American boy way of talking, that seems unfair or something like this. But, uh, I mean, we spend a lot of time in theology answering people who think God's unfair with regard to hell, the problem of evil, why innocent suffer, and so forth. And to, I'm not going to bolt when I think, yikes, somebody might not like that. It seems to me if he has foreknowledge, he has perfect foreknowledge, he knows what he's going to do. It's not as though he's kind of tossing out there and saying, boy, I hope this works out. Well, I think I'll go with this guy or we'll plan B. I, I think he knows from the very beginning what he's doing. When I was a kid, uh, I wanted World Book Encyclopedia. And my mom said I would have to pitch in and my dad said I'd have to pitch in. So I shelled pecans and wove potholders until uh, my hands bled. And, and, uh, martyred, I did potholders, too, Potholders, man. This, that's the root of all goodness, I think. Uh, and so I shopped those things all over the neighborhood and, and got a lot of money. And I just was thinking all along, World Book Encyclopedia, I'm going to have my own set. And they actually made up some of the difference. I think God chose to have fellowship with certain people and that, he did everything necessary to go after after particular people. It's it's not trouble, troublesome to me, and it, it it seems to me that the alternative would be just kind of odd that he would throw something out and and he says, well, I'm not really going to go for that guy, but wait, I really know that it's going to be him. But you know, I'm actually actually going to act as though I really don't know it's going to be him. It, it just seems like a curious double blind thing you're doing there. Jerry, let me add one thing. Mark said Mark used the word unfair, and I cannot agree more. Salvation is not uh, fair; it's grace. And therefore, for all of us, regardless of where you fall on the continuum of your understanding of the issues of salvation, you must absolutely affirm that my salvation was not because of my works, my goodness, the fact that God really thought I was a noble, wonderful person he could take advantage of and use. No, all of us were saved by grace. We didn't deserve it. We were in rebellion against God. We weren't looking for God. He came looking for us. And so is it fair? Praise God. No, it's not fair. It's yeah. grace. We'd be goners. If it absolutely. Were fair. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Let's move on down that line to L. Limited atonement. Limited atonement. That's a point at which a lot of people who, uh, you know, have common ground begin to sort of break with one another in their thinking and seeing of it. And so I'm going to quote a few scriptures, and I'd like you all to respond. So let's start with this kind of scripture first. Here, there's some scriptures that say things like this. Uh, Feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. Uh, he shall, you shall call his name Jesus, for he saved 
his people from their sins. Uh, Would you comment on those kinds of scriptures which seem to say, they seem to say that the death of Christ was for the church, for his people. They're verses about the atonement. They're verses about the scope of the atonement. And how do you read those texts, Dr. Carpenter? Well, I mean, as with a lot of doctrines, you have some scriptures that are sort of awkward. I mean, I think I, if I took one scripture out of out of context, sometimes I could prove that baptismal regeneration or something that you have to take it as a whole. So there are actually some pretty impressive. I mean, the Calvinist would uh, kind of blanch it like he's not willing that any should perish and and so forth, and so he puts in context. And then you you have Romans nine or his sheep, or he prays for his own and. In, uh, in John 17. So there, there is a contextualization uh, for the thing. But a, a, again, it strikes me that um, he set his mind on certain things, and that is the issue of sovereignty. Uh, it's, it's not as though he's, he's sort, of, sort of winging it. I like the verses you quoted, that he, uh, he has gone after particular people and he has built his church. And there's no injustice in others not making the church. All of us deserve hell. And, uh, you know, it's like... Uh, You've got, uh, you know, a bunch of people speeding, speeding and uh, uh, you pull one guy over and he says, that's not fair, uh, those guys got away. Well, were you speeding? Yes, I was. So you have no beef. Uh, it's not your business what I'm doing with the rest. And it strikes me that he does, in fact, choose particular people, his sheep, uh, the elect. I mean, it seems to me that's, that's kind of a, a logical counterbalance. I mean, it, it fits with, with the elect, that if he's elected some and they can't save themselves, he has to go after them. Uh, the elect. I, I will throw this in just as a, sometimes in philosophy we talk about having uh, uh, distinctions without differences. And some of the things you read in the Bible uh, are momentous for the pastor. I mean, how you read divorce and remarriage, I'm telling you, you can get into big trouble in a hurry one way or the other. You can, in, any way you go, you're going to have ramifications. Whether it's tithing or what have you, there are all kinds of things. But I'm thinking, what is really at stake here? I mean, when we get up in the morning and if, if uh, I'm a particular redemptionist and you're not, we still go out and, and witness. Uh, we still do the same thing. So you're wondering, kind of wondering, is this a tempest in a teapot? All right. Let me quote some other scriptures. Uh, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Uh, John wrote, He's the propitiation for our sins, but not our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. God was in Christ, Paul said reconciling the world to himself. So, Dr. Aiken, how do you see those verses? Well, actually, I like all the verses you've quoted, yeah. both the ones that Mark affirmed and the ones that you just read. They're all really good. They're in the Bible. Yes, they really yeah, are. I love them. They absolutely love are. Uh, <laughs> let me, first of all, point out that Mark used the phrase that most five-point Calvinists prefer, and that's particular redemption. And I believe you should allow them to set their own terminology, and I think that's a better term than limited atonement. But having said that, I am a generalist i believe in a universal provision that christ indeed died for every sin of every person and that there is a limited application that is those who trust christ by faith or if you like from god's side those who are the elect and the and the predestined now i also say to my students unless you are a universalist all of us limit the atonement in some way i limit it in terms of its application to the believing uh, elect, uh, those who repent and exercise faith, yet believing there is a dual intent or a dual purpose to the atonement. I think God actually intended and designed to provide a universal atonement, 
But he also designed within that to save his people, save his sheep, purchase a select group with his own blood. Now, I'm very much aware of the fact that, and of course, Mark and I both would agree very strongly on the essential nature of penal substitution. We both agree on that. And there are some who believe that penal substitution logically carries you to particular redemption. I understand the logic of that argument. I'm simply not convinced that it can withstand the weight of certain scriptures that seem to me on a straightforward facial reading would argue for a universal or that's not the best word, a general atonement in which Christ intended to make a universal provision. Let's talk about that for a minute. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live from the Southern Baptist Convention. Our guest, Dr. Mark Coppinger. And Dr. Danny Aiken, we're talking about Calvinism, predestination. We've got a microphone over here. In a few minutes, we're going to invite people in the audience to ask a question or two, so stay tuned for that. But I want to camp on this point for a few minutes because I actually feel just a little bit of tension, and that's what this kind of a discussion is about. Let's chew the theological fat here. And uh, so I want to talk about the history of this understanding, uh, the witnessing and evangelism. I want to talk about logic. You mentioned logic. You mentioned logic. I want to ask you this, Mark. Um, you know, sola fide, sola gratia, uh, these are Reformation principles. Uh, what would you say if somebody said, well, sola logia is not? And if, you, and if you get to limited atonement through a series of logical arguments about election, well, that might seem logical, but what about these texts which just flatly seem to say he's the propitiation not only for our sins but for the sins of the world and... and um, He's the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe, though. That's interesting, too. But what would you say if there, there's a handful of texts sure. that just seem to say sure. on the surface, Christ died for the world, and we've we got to be careful making a logical deduction from some other, some other kind of a, um, a doctrine over to that one. What would you say to that? Well, I mean, logic's pretty good stuff. I mean, if you take the... Uh principle of non-contradiction out of uh, theology, you're going to be talking nonsense. Right, right. Uh, uh, it's, it's not as though it's uh, this sort of peck sniff thing for some uh, academic. I mean, just talking sensibly, uh, and, and there are implications. I mean, if you say all men are mortal and I say you're a man, then you're mortal. That's logic. Uh, it's, it's good stuff. Uh, but the question is, is the logic, is the logic uh, appropriate? Um, I, first, uh, let me say one thing very quickly about, about evangelism, uh, because that you say it can go wrong. I'm not very good at it, but the last couple of weeks in our church, we have a bunch of students. We went out over Evanston. We handed out bottles of water with scriptures. We, we shopped in the stores and handed out cards and talked in the faith. And, and uh, the thing that Calvinism gives me, or I would say Pauline theology for that matter, uh, is the hope that in that very wealthy, agnostic, uh, or mainline, or Catholic, or Jewish setting on the North Shore, when there seems to be no hope, we can hope that God will do a miracle. So it gives us hope to keep going in evangelism because he does, these, he does this kind of work. Um, yeah, the verse, i tell you what I did uh, when, I, when I heard we were going to do this. I went ahead and, and, and just went to these chapters on this issue, and you get the text back and forth. So I did Grudem and Ryrie and Culver and Erickson and all kinds of folks like this. And it is interesting back and forth. And as, as one guy observed in theology, everybody has to swallow his toad. You know, there's one kind of treatment of a verse that is a little more awkward than than others um i would suggest that people go and and read the favorite verses but it, it strikes me that some are better answered than others there's one that talks about i think it's in first peter that talks about 
people who have been in the faith, but they're wrecking it because they've gotten into heresy and the, the very faith that saved you, now you're betraying it. And as I read that, is that, therefore, you know, they were elected, but then they don't have it. But it strikes me that some people in the faith can be get into heresy. I mean, I, I don't know him, but I'm thinking Greg Boyd's probably saved, but he does heresy, you know, when he does open theism. I think Peter and Barnabas went off on a toot for a while with Judaizing. And so I really do think you can be saved and do have seasons of heresy, too. So I, what you do is you treat these, like he's not willing that any should perish, any who? Like no dogs, no grass? or I mean, what, what's going on here? It's, it's those that he's talking about in the book. But there are wonderful answers and contextualizations on the other side. So you kind of have to... Well, I'm going to ask him one yeah, like that, yeah. which is this. Dr. Aiken, you mentioned you believed in penal substitution. Absolutely. But there are a lot of Calvinists who say, look, if you really believe that doctrine, that Christ died as a substitute for these folks, if um, for, for them to be damned later under the, under the theory of unlimited atonement would be kind of unfair, be kind of a double payment for sin, and that God would not be honoring the sacrifice of his son Jesus if he died for them, but then in the end they're not redeemed. What would your response be to that? I think there's a better model, and the model is the distinction between provision and appropriation. Uh, For example, I could have someone make a million-dollar deposit in my bank account, a glorious, wonderful, gracious, undeserved provision. It is there for me. But if I do not appropriate it, I do not draw upon it, then it is of no value to me. I personally think that's a better model of articulating what the Scriptures seem to indicate in terms of the provision of his substitutionary atonement, but also the responsibility for me to draw upon that atonement. And so I recognize that's not what uh, the classic work by John Owen argued. I very respectfully, extremely respectfully disagree with the great Dr. Owen. Similar kind of question for you, Dr. Coppinger. Uh, you mentioned missions and evangelism, and right. all the best Calvinists uh, are good evangelists, I hope, and, and uh, they're always quick to say, we want to do missions, we want to do evangelism, we want to preach the gospel. But this double jeopardy notion has a, is sort of a two-edged sword, I think. I want to play a scenario out for you. If the death of Christ was not with reference to the non-elect. That is, if the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but that event is not with reference to the non-elect. He did not die for them. He was not raised for them. Is there a gospel for that man? It's one thing for me to say Christ died for someone like you. Christ died for sinners like you. But can I really say it is a fact of history, rooted in history, Christ died for your sins and rose again. You must repent and believe on that reality. And another question is, people are going to be damned for their sins they committed, but we're also told they're going to be damned for not believing. If there was nothing for them to believe, how could that be an element in that damnation of not believing? Um, You mean they don't hear the gospel because they're in the... No, if the gospel was not with reference to them, there was no content to believe. There was was nothing for them to believe if if the death of Christ was not with reference to them. It's a similar kind of a question, but the other direction. Right, yeah. Um, I mean, let me me say a couple of things. I I do think that the crucifixion was for all people in in a number of ways. And most Calvinists do believe that there are universal 
uh, aspect, absolutely. Exactly. Sort of temporary I mean, suspension of doom and things like that, and God's common grace on the earth. Well, yeah, I mean, at least that. Like that. Yeah, yeah. I, d- I do this kind of sketch in class sometimes where I draw I draw a picture of the world, and, and then I say, let's list all the cars up there. I mean, and so you've got Toyota in Japan, you've got, you know, Ford here, and then Citroën and so forth. And I say, how come their cars are here? You know, th- this is a Francis Schaeffer sort of argument. How come there? How come there's no Muslim car? You know, you don't buy a Somali car. Why? Why is there no animist car? To make a very long story short, Christian culture creates um, this, the sort. I mean, the rule of law, research and development. I mean, Muslims can blow up a car; they ju- they just can't build one. And so, there as we invent <laughs> medicines and ambulances and so forth That's and good. so on. So there, there are cultural things, and you've got William Wilberforce, and you and you've got art, and you've got all kinds of implications people are just basking in christian goodness alfred north whitehead who's not a believer said that modern science is based upon christian understanding so there's that i i also think that i mean when i was in the national guard we did riot control training and one of the things we did was uh i mean you have the batons and the advisors and the whole thing it was quite interesting and you know you hear the expression read the riot act you know well you read the riot act i mean when you come to a group of people you say with a with a bullhorn this is an illegal assembly. You, you know, must disperse, da-da-da-da-da, according to articles such and such. You know perfectly well they're going to still burn the cars and they're going to scream at you. But you put the bullhorn down and you wait. And then you pick it up again. This is your second warning. I think you do it three times, knowing exactly how they're going to reject it. But until you give them the statement, they're not legally guilty. You know what I'm saying? So it puts the accountability on them. So I think one thing that, uh, that Christ's death on the cross did was it put everybody on the spot. And it made a free offer to everyone, too. So it is a display of, of his justice that he puts it right out there. So, I mean, those are two of the things that come from But is there this. a saving message for that non-elect man to believe? Is there actually a saving message which we can tell him to believe? Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be, you know, blotted out, uh, have right. faith, you know. Okay. Uh, it's the message. Okay. And then you see what happens. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. From the Southern Baptist Convention, our guests, Dr. Mark Coppinger and Dr. Danny Aiken. We're talking about Calvinism, predestination. looking for a college experience that is distinctively Christian, come to Criswell College. Contact us today for information about the upcoming term. Criswell College places a strong emphasis on the Word of God, a Christian worldview, and being an effective witness to a world that needs Jesus Christ. Criswell College is totally committed to the Bible as the authoritative, inspired, and inerrant Word of God to ensure that every student receives a solid biblical and doctrinal foundation. Our worldview approach to ministry prepares every Criswell College student to view each academic discipline through a Christian frame of reference and to engage our culture in the world of ideas from a Christian perspective. Along with his word and worldview emphasis, each Criswell College student gets hands-on ministry training in missions and evangelism to be an effective witness through mission trips at home and abroad. Contact Criswell College today for information about the upcoming term. Call 1-800-899-0012 or on the web go to criswell.edu. That's chriswell.edu. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's your host, Dr. Jerry Johnson, president of Criswell College and Criswell Communications. 
You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. We're at the Southern Baptist Convention. We're talking about Calvinism, predestination, free will. Our guest, Dr. Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and Dr. Mark Coppinger. He teaches at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's pastor of Evanston Baptist Church. Let's move down the list. Irresistible grace, the I. Irresistible grace. Dr. Aiken, how it, do you see that notion? Well, it ought to be an E. Which it's would be? Effectual calling. Yes. By the way, let me, real quick, uh, Tim George has roses. Have you heard this? Radical depravity, overcoming grace, sovereign election, eternal life, and singular redemption. It's much so more positive. He's got another thing there. But it's much anyway. more positive. Yeah. Let's yes. go with this one here. Well, irresistible grace has the idea of God kind of just bulging you into heaven, and I don't think the Scriptures teach that. But I don't see how you can read Romans 8 and not see clearly an effectual call that results in your glorification. Now, again, because I am a compatibilist, I believe that God does effectually call people to be saved. But he does so in such a way that it works in perfect harmony with their responsibility to repent and believe the gospel. Now, again, if you ask me, explain that, I'm glad to tell you I cannot do that. I simply know that it seems, well, I do know. The Scripture teaches effectual calling. The Scripture also teaches responsibility of human beings to repent and exercise faith. And so I'm going to preach both, teach both with great boldness, great, hopefully, clarity, and let the two stand side by side. You know, Spurgeon talked about the fact that I may not be able to make them cross or meet, but you don't make, I mean, make them uh, meet, but you don't make them cross. They run as two parallel truths. Use the word paradox if you like. I prefer the phrase an antinomy, that there's a genuine uh, mystery to the reality of God's effectually calling sinners to be saved and their responsibility to repent and believe the gospel. And it is interesting, by the way, that Romans 9 is immediately followed by the great missionary chapter of Romans 10. And so Paul did not hesitate to put those two things side by side and affirm both. I'm going to join Paul. Dr. Carpenter, how do we think through verses uh, like this where Jesus looked over the city and said, Oh, Jerusalem, I would, but you would not. Or we have that sermon in Acts, you know, why do you always resist the Holy Spirit? And so how do you think through this doctrine of effectual calling or irresistible grace when you see little examples like that where it seems like Jesus or God is calling people to do things, but then they don't do them? Is it a sincere offer? Well, I mean, for me, of course, for me, it's a sincere. I don't have a clue who's yeah. going to be saved. It'd be nice if people like wore vests or something if they're going to be had elect. An e elect, yeah, or and e and not in non elect. They get a star and it turns blue when they actually are converted. <laughs> uh, so for us, it's just it's just wide open. But I mean, it's not a particular problem for the Calvinist. I mean, if you're looking forward to the whole history of the world and you see that certain people are going to be damned, and you could actually do something to their minds so that they would sing Hosanna but you don't, then, you know, you've got responsibility either way you look at it. God is, is um, compatible. His will is compatible with people being damned. But, but uh, I, you know, it, it just strikes me that if you believe that it, man is depraved, uh, deprived and depraved and deprived, but yes. depraved in his will and his intellect and his emotions and all these things, uh, it, it, he has to batter down the walls. And so... Uh, and, and they're beautiful pictures. I mean, whether it's, you know, knocking Paul off a horse or opening Lydia's heart, that's how he does it. It's not always that dramatic. But, uh, yeah, I just think he demonstrates by making the appeal to all people, he demonstrates that uh, that certain people are hardened. And, and there is a, there's a wonderful thing of regeneration. I don't know fabrics yes. very well, but you turn from... You turn from, like, canvas to velour or seersucker to linen or something, and you have a different nature. 
and to go wildly about freedom, 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 it seems to me, Ephesians and other books to teach, that man is in bondage. Right. You know, this freedom, freedom thing. And then he's, he's in dead. another kind of bondage. He's, he's dead. dead. Let's talk about and this then he's, in, he's in bondage to the Lord afterwards. And uh, by the way, does freedom all go away in heaven? I, I wonder about the Arminians. You know that's that, a great question. That uh, you know we're all for freedom, freedom, freedom. Then you get to heaven, and no one, no one can leave heaven. Jerry, uh, let me just add a quick pastoral sure. word. I do think if we are being pastorally sensitive and wise, we do acknowledge that we pray and should pray like Calvinists. At least I pray God, God saves this absolutely. Child. But yeah, then I yeah. need to witness. Yeah. Like a radical Arminian who does believe that I must take every ounce of energy God has given me to get the gospel to the ends of the earth and as many people as I possibly can. And so, again, for me, part of it is attitudinal. Uh, If you get either an Arminian with an attitude who eventually begins to attack the very nature of God, or you get an extreme Calvinist with an attitude who basically winds up being a fatalist, both of those are absolutely damning to historic, orthodox, evangelical Christianity. And so I think within the SBC, there is room for a healthy middle where there are guys on the the left side and the right side. But there are some extremes on the left and the right. I don't mean to be unkind, but in love, they need to be lopped off because they're heretical, they're pastorally insensitive, and evangelistically and theologically, they are a death nail. I think that's a good word for our convention. You know, one of the great things about the conservative resurgence over the last 30 years, and it's been a coalition, really, of different um, folks um, on the Calvinistic issue, some more or less Calvinistic, but conservatives, inerrantists, and on the broad scheme of things in America, they're pretty reformed, actually. They're they're, they're not having, uh, you know, in the mainline denominations, they're not having this debate right. because they jettisoned biblical authority so long right. ago, they can't even believe people walk around even have conversations like this. And so right. when people get all upset, I actually want to say, no, 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 this is a healthy thing. This is a good thing. With respect and love for one another, we should be able to talk about things that we de- uh, deem important because we believe they're scripturally based and scripturally rooted. We wouldn't have this debate if it were not for our conviction about the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible. You know, we've all been associated with Southern Seminary, for instance, a rich tradition there in the past, but Broadus and Boyce had different views on this somewhat, and there was a little tension there, but it was always behind the scenes. They were united in the cause of Christ and the cause of the seminary. But let's dig down a little bit deeper here, because they had some interesting debates, I think, and discussions about uh, the notion of um, irresistible grace and we talked about conversion and the new birth. Uh, let's talk about this for a minute. Do, you, do either one of you believe that the new birth actually precedes or needs to precede repentance or faith? Is there a chronological order? Do you believe that's simultaneous? We shouldn't be talking about one before the other. There are some people who even thought years ago that someone could be awakened and regenerate maybe several days before they would repent or believe. What do you think about this notion? Well, I'll go ahead and tip my hand. Again, I believe it, that they happen simultaneously, that conversion, regeneration, repentance, and faith are all instantaneous. Now, that does not handle the logical question or the theological question. But again, I beg out. Uh, and <laughs> Anthony, a uh, There's a good Calvinist named Anthony Hokima who begged out with me, or actually I'm begging out with him, who said... I'm simply going to affirm again the simultaneous occurrence of those, and I'm not going to say, of course, he would not. I do not know a Calvinist that would say repentance and faith 
precedes regeneration. I struggle to say that because I don't know how a dead person spiritually can repent and exercise faith. I don't think it's possible. In fact, I'm quite sure it's not possible. And I do believe dead in Ephesians 2.1 means dead. It's not like, well, you know, dead can just mean separate. No, no, no. The rest of the text makes it clear the wrath of God abides on them. They walk according to the prince of the power of the air. They are by nature children of... I mean, it's just, it's just strong language. So they have to be made alive in Christ. That works in perfect harmony with repentance and faith. How? That's God's business. Anything to add to that, Dr. Cullen? No, I, I agree with man. As, as, as messed up as, as the Bible says he is, God's got to give faith as a gift. But I'm not saying... I think... It's the logical order, it is. but it, it, I, would, I think it's virtually contemporaneous. But I just remember I was a preacher's kid, and I, we were at church forever. Every time the door was open, my mom was the WMU president, and I just thought if we ever got hit in the car and all killed, we'd all go to heaven on the family plan. And I, I heard a lot of gospel, and and then one day I just got terrified, and I thought, wait a second, this is this is your deal, Coppinger. And I remember the it was after Bible school, the final service, and he started talking about sin. I thought, who? Who told on me? Uh, he didn't know I'd been into something. I don't know what it was at the time, but it was something probably illegal. Uh, <laughs> but at any rate, uh, I can remember very clearly that conviction and that, that just sweatiness and asking my mom, you know, what could. And I had heard the gospel a thousand times, but then he visited me in power, and then he gave me the awakening as I heard the gospel God. that, thank God, faith can save me and stuff. So I think he gave it to me. But uh, I'm not saying it's, you know, it's like one of these second blessing things like, you know, you're going to get saved. And then after a while, if you watch the right TV, you can get the, the I spirit. think we have mm-hmm. to say that Ephesians 2 is clear, that saving faith is a gift of God. Yeah. Now, ever how it fleshes out in some of these nuances, we have to at least start there and recognize my faith was not something I conjured up by, you know, just, mm. yeah. no, sir. God gave it to you as a gift. Right. Otherwise, you would not have it. All right. The softball question is coming yes. up. But while I'm asking that. Make your way to the mic, and Andrew A. Bear will be around. to. to, If you have a question, tell him what it would be, and he'll get ready. We'll have a couple of questions from the audience. Maybe you felt like one of these men uh, said something you disagree with, or you want to ask a deeper question, or maybe you want them to clarify, or you felt like they didn't answer a question, you want to press them, that would be great. But, uh, you know, most of us agree on perseverance of the saints, that last point. But I'm wondering, you know, Baptists have always kind of had this mantra, once saved, always saved i wonder if that's really a biblical way to put it i certainly believe that but perseverance of the saints may be a more biblical way to, i'd like for you all to comment about that phrase uh versus once saved always well, saved you see that southern baptists have probably emphasized maybe that in an unhealthy way i think once saved always saved is problematic in terms of being pastorally responsible because it gives people the impression right or wrong that once I'm saved, then I can go out and live virtually any way that I want. I will say to people, I believed in once saved, always saved, but you cannot live any way that you want because your wants have changed, because you're now new in Christ. Therefore, I much prefer the term eternal security, which is actually kind of a subjective thing, uh, actually an objective thing. I am eternally secure in Christ. That is my objective reality. But perseverance of the saints implies also that I am kept by God. But as the scriptures also indicate, I also am in the process of keeping myself. Now, ultimately, uh, it is, you know, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So security is objective, but assurance is subjective. subjective. Knowing that it is God who works in and through you to do it. So ultimately, it's of God. But does that mean then I just lay back and do? No, I pursue with all of my 
being holiness, sanctification, godliness. I, I am after Christ's likeness with a with a uh, a fervency and a vibrancy, not because it keeps me saved, but because I am saved and I have that great confidence of my security. Then I pursue Christ, and because of my, I've been captured by His love. How could I not want to pursue Him? Yeah. And sometimes it's called preservation of the saints yes. to pick up. But, yeah, I really do think there's some good, healthy fear that comes into it comes into a life. And I think it was maybe Tom Schreiner who said that the uh, apostasy passages in Hebrew were part of what God uses to keep his people sufficiently mm-hmm. <laughs> sufficiently anxious. This may be apocryphal, but, I, you know, Wesley was more Armenian and Whitfield more Calvinist. And they asked one of them, I think they asked Whitfield if he'd see Wesley in heaven or whatever, trying to stir up a fight. And he said, I don't think so. And they said, what are you talking about? He said, I think he'll be so close to the throne and I'll be so far away I won't be able to make him out. And I think that charitable... Humility. That humility. This may be a, a terrible example, but uh, an analogy, but a, a woman uh, brought her husband into a psychiatrist and said uh, he thinks he's a chicken. And uh, the psychiatrist said, well, I think we can work with that. She said, well, not so fast. We need the eggs. And uh, sometimes I'm inclined to say... Uh, uh, some of these folks I disagree with on theology think that they're really squared away doctrinally, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, we can fix that. And I say, well, not so fast. They're winning people to the Lord. Uh, you know, there, there is a wonderful community among Baptists where we decided that particulars and, uh, and general Baptists would somehow get along. Now, you don't just amalgamate, amalgamate everything and think, no. well, it's always in the middle. There really is truth and falsity. But I'm just saying God is... is in his kingdom, there's some wonderful divergence on this. I'm well, it's fascinating to talk about it. This is Jerry Johnson Live. We're at the Southern Baptist Convention in San Antonio, Texas. My guests, Dr. Danny Aiken and Dr. Mark Coppinger, we're talking about predestination, Calvinism, free will. And we've got an audience here. They've been patiently listening. We've got about 12, 15 minutes left. And let's go to our first question over here at the microphone. State your name, where you're from, and your question and who it's for. My name is Alan, and I'm from Arkansas. My question is Romans chapter 9, verse 18, where he says he hardens those whom he wills, and he shows grace and mercy to those whom he wills. And my question is, does the clay have any power over the potter? No. Who wants to take that? Dr. Coffey? No, the clay does not have any power over the potter. I mean, that's kind of an easy one. But, I, you know, I, I do think that, and, and by the way, there are other passages to talk about giving them over to a reprobate mind or, all right, fine, you want that, and he just makes them drunk with their sin but I, I don't have a big problem with god just saying this person is made as a vessel for destruction all right uh, dr i can follow up on that uh and uh theologically that's one argument textually do you believe in the context some people would make the argument that's really about israel that's really that statement is about a subject of israel as a group versus the gentiles as a group what do you think of that well i've heard that argument and i would simply say i can't find a distinction in scripture between how God elects a nation and how God elects an individual. Uh, I've looked. I've looked hard. I can't find it. I, I would say that we need to take that this one is is an analogy. And so you don't push an analogy or an illustration too far because that's exactly what it is, an analogy or an illustration. I think we also have to couple what you read there in Romans 9 with what you read in Romans 10, where, again, this analogy of God hardening those who are uh, objects of his wrath is not incompatible with the fact that they are sinners in absolute rebellion against God of their own free will, of their own choosing, and the only thing that will transfer that or transform that is the gospel being taken to them, and hence we need more preachers. We've got time for another question. If somebody wants to go to the mic and ask that question, that'd be great. But let me ask you guys this, you know, a lot of people think, you know, the convention is, um, 
used to be more Calvinistic in the early days, at least a lot more prominence uh, of, of Calvinist, five-point Calvinist in the early presidencies and the early convention leadership than we see today, although we see a resurgent Calvinism here and there at certain seminaries and certain groups and associations. Uh, how do you feel about the trend? Do you think we need uh, a renewed emphasis on uh, the doctrines of grace, so-called? Do we need a a renewed emphasis uh, on Calvinism in the convention. What is needed? Let me say this. It is true that we in our founding, uh, 1845 through the early uh, end of the 1800s, were more Calvinistic. That's a historical fact. Not that it was exclusively Calvinistic, but clearly Southern Seminary was founded by four men, all of whom were committed to Reformed theology. You see that wane uh, in the 20s through the 50s and 60s. Uh, it's not by accident that some of it's connected with liberalism. You now see something of a resurgence. But I, I would say this first, Jerry. We need desperately in the SBC a resurgence of theology. Yeah. That's what we need Any, more than, than anything theology. else. Then we can actually engage a discussion about something like Calvinism in a good, healthy fashion. And I think you'll be able to see both then its strengths and its weaknesses, just like you would see strengths or weaknesses of any other uh, theological system. Uh, I'm not upset by the resurgence of it because I think it is an evidence that we are thinking about theology again, and it is also only going to be carried on by those who have a commitment to the inerrancy of the Bible. My concern is with what I would call Calvinist with an attitude, uh, an attitudinal disposition that is arrogant, that is elitist, and that sometimes goes into churches thinking, I'm here to straighten these people out theologically, and there's no pastoral heart there. And because of the lack of a pastoral heart, it is destructive, uh, it is hurtful, and in the long run, it's counterproductive to good, faithful ministry. By the same token, you know, I'm kind of in a unique position. I worked for eight years alongside of Paige Patterson. I worked for uh, nine years, eight years alongside of Al Mohler. Uh, everyone knows where Al and Paige are theologically. I had a joy. It was a blessing. I never had any grief working alongside either one of those men for 17 years. Why? Because Paige Patterson, who is not a five-point Calvinist, does have a strong doctrine of God's sovereignty. Al Mohler, who is a five-point Calvinist, is passionate in terms of missions and evangelism. He chaired the Billy Graham crusade when it came to Louisville. He started the Billy Graham School of Missions, Evangelism, and Church Growth. And so if you've got men that are committed to God's sovereignty and men that are committed to fulfilling the Great Commission, there is plenty of room for us to work and work well together. And that's what we desperately need to understand in the SBC. And sometimes there are shrill voices uh, that paint with too broad of a brush, and as a result, there is little communication. We're talking at each other more than with each other. And so a revival of theology will get us down the road and having some healthy conversations about these kind of issues. But that's my own judgment. Yeah, I agree about the attitude thing. I mean, you, can, you can have all kinds of snotty attitudes about different things, but Calvinists can surely play this game. I think there's. I think in philosophy we talk about the fallacy of misplaced precision, where you like figure IQ out to the 12th decimal point. The subject doesn't admit of that much precision. Right. And so there are people who, whether it's eschatology or Calvinism, Absolutely. figure it out. And I'm, I'm reminded of an Emo Phillips, uh, who's a comedian, routine where he meets a guy on a bridge and he says uh, hi where are you from he says you know I'm saying, well, have you got a church or well, i'm baptist i'm baptist oh what kind of baptist? i'm southern baptist northern baptist southern baptist i'm southern baptist well let's say northern baptist northern baptist oh northern baptist confession of 1317 or confession 137 me too and he goes down through like 12 iterations and then he f says like 
uh, Northern Baptist Confession of 1370, you know, the uh, Anderson, Indiana Assembly, uh, North Side, <laughs> Blue Sox and stuff. And he said, Blue Sox or Red Sox? He says, Blue Sox. He says, die heretic and pushes him off the bridge. Uh, some of these people get so nitpicky, yes. it's just the craziest thing. I, I don't have a big agenda. I just know I just got hit over the head by some passages and I hadn't gotten over it. So that's kind of my agenda, just to try. But look, here are a couple of things where I think it could help to get serious about theology. Um, there is this name it and claim it sort. Well, let's we'll put that on side. The, the idea that I'm going to I'm going to repent of this later, but you can push the missional thing so much that you're taking your cues from the culture, and you're thinking like, if I can grow a soul patch and wear my jeans low or something, I'll connect up with my community. And and you know, like I know you got Acts That's 17. That's the work of the Lord, is what you're saying. I'm saying, yes. yeah. What they're saying is, you've got to read your community yeah. to be like that. Well, sure, be sensitive. Acts 17. I know all that, but you forget that the power is the gospel. Absolutely. You know, you're so embarrassed Absolutely. that I've got to put on this this deal, and you know, whether we're going to play the accordion or or set ourselves on fire, it depends on our culture. And I'm thinking, look, yeah, be sensitive, but absolutely know that the power is in the preaching of the word, not not by being um, ameliorated to your culture. Absolutely. Let's it's, go to another question here. We got a folks, uh, somebody over at the microphone there. Yes, go ahead. State your name. Ask your question. I'm Jim Goforth, St. Louis, Missouri. My question, in line with what you've just said, is Calvinism has become such a divider when it doesn't have to be. Could we come up with a different term instead of calling it? Because none of us are really. Calvinists Let's, all the way down the line. Let me nuance that just a bit. You know, one of the problems with Tulip is that that was a historical um, outline based to a historical conundrum. Is there perhaps uh, a, a new paradigm for us to talk about salvation that we should, I mean, is it time for us to really try to find a better way to talk about these issues. Well, Jerry, I'll tell you this. I tell people that I consider myself to be a Great Commission Christian. They say, well, that doesn't answer anything. Well, I think it does. Great Commission begins with Jesus saying, all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. What a statement of sovereignty. But then we are commissioned and commanded to go and make disciples. So again, I am going to be someone that affirms and embraces with great passion the sovereignty of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ, the inerrancy of the Bible, the exclusivity of the gospel, the necessity of all men and women repenting and exercising faith, and my responsibility to do everything I can to be sure to be active in getting that message out. Now, within that, we can talk about things. I don't mind calling myself a reformational Christian. I believe in all the solas. And so I don't mind going there and then realizing within that, we may nuance some things. Fine. That's what theological discussion and debate is all about. And it's a good thing if it is done with uh, grace, kindness, and mutual respect. And let's just be honest. Some of our guys have a zeal and a knowledge, but they lack love. And I don't need just two of the three. For me to be a healthy Christian, I need zeal. I need knowledge, but I need to have love both for my brothers and sisters in Christ as well as the lost. And if I have that, then I can engage them in these kind of healthy, I think even necessary discussions in a way that is positive per the question and not negative and hurtful. Yeah. And I will say this, that there, and I, I agree, Danny, I do think there's there's a fair amount of snippiness on the other side. I mean, I've there is. heard tapes circulated and sermons here and there where somebody just stuck a cattle prod into the Calvinists, like, you know, this is the worst thing. I'm like, whoa, what is that? So there's a fair amount of that as well. I, what's the other name? I don't know. I mean, I you know, whether I read Bondage of Will by Luther or parts of Augustine, there are other and doctrines of grace or whatever. But, 
yeah, I, I just think Great Commission Christian is a great a great thing. But yes. if you want to, but when someone says, "Are you a Calvinist?" I say, "No, I don't baptize babies." Right. You know, I mean, what? You believe I, in a church? Tell state. me what you mean right. by that, right. and I'll I'll tell you what I'm what I'm doing. Or yeah, same thing. I want to close with this scripture, and I think it fits something that both of you have been talking about here. And it's um, when Jesus said in John 15, When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. That was very specific, of course, about the apostles. There's an application here for us today, and that is the Holy Spirit must convict, must draw, must convert, must awaken. We know that. He will witness of Jesus. The only way anybody's ever going to know that Jesus really is who he said he was and did what we say he did is when the Holy Spirit convicts a man of that very thing. But Jesus also said, And you will also bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. One of the ways the Holy Spirit will do that is to use you and to use me. This is Jerry Johnson live from Criswell College. Thank you, Dr. Danny Aiken. Thank you, Dr. Mark Coppinger. Thank you all for being here today. You've been listening to Jerry Johnson Live, a Christian worldview radio show. Join Dr. Jerry Johnson, president of Criswell College and Criswell Communications, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. for an hour of relevant discussion of news and culture from a Christian perspective.